The soundscapes you just heard came in from participants in the 7th Annual Dawn Chorus event, hosted by Toronto's High Park Nature Centre. Those contributors were Becky Hogg, Makita M., Petra Drezier, and Min Wong. During the digital portion of this event, an audience listened to the soundscape you heard in part one of this bonus episode, which was then followed by some discussion. In this next part, you'll hear myself, Andreas Emanes, Jenny Davis, and Haya Alduri in that discussion. Those were good recordings, Rob. First of all, tell us where you mentioned Kutz Paradise in Hamilton. But yeah. when did you get these recordings and why did you choose that day? Uh, Wednesday morning. And yeah, it was because it was good weather. Um, I saw a forecast of quite a bit of rain coming up in the week. So I wanted to make sure to catch it. Um, yeah, sunny. Um, not necessarily warm, but uh, warm enough to get the birds singing. <laughs> Rob, some of the new people to listening to birds were asking themselves in the chat, how can they start separating the species? And I always find it puzzling how to get a mental state to listen to the birds without being caught into uh, feeling frustrated that you cannot ID all the birds and moving from enjoying the chorus to IDing some birds without being frustrated because you cannot separate and ID all the birds. How do you do it? Uh, it takes time. Um, the best way I tell people to learn is kind of get to know a local patch, one that they visit often and all year round, um, because you'll get to know, first of all, the more common birds that are resident, ones that are not um, migrants that stay around all year. Once you get to know those birds really well, you can start to separate them out um, when you get around to this time of year when it's the most amount of birds <laughs> right now. And also like during the later in the spring and the summer when these birds are singing on territory rather than migrating, mm -hmm. there's far fewer species and you can spend more time focusing on that. Um, and you can use resources like my podcast or rec make your own recordings as well during the uh, breeding season uh, so that you can listen in the off season to these birds singing uh, when they're not around or if they're not singing at that time. Rob, tell us about the symphony. Who comes in the overture and then who starts coming in after that and who ends? <laughs> which which one are the last? Is there an order to how birds wake up and start singing? Well, from what I know, obviously the American robin seems to be the first one. <laughs> no matter what, they they get uh, one of the it's maybe good or bad depending on who you're talking to um due to the kind of unnatural light we have outdoors and um, street lights and things like that they wake up a lot earlier than other birds because they consider astronomical twilight coming a lot sooner uh than for most people so sometimes you will have that robin singing at 2 a.m because they do 
Yeah, uh, because there's enough light for it. Um, otherwise, like when I was doing this recording, I had to, you know, move around to different spots because one thing I've noticed is that in during dawn course, birds don't move very much. They're trying to establish a territory. Mm -hmm. So um, once the birds that are on territory start chiming in, um, they're there for the duration, but the ones that will come in and out might be at this time of year migrants. Uh, because uh, the warblers take a little longer to wake up because they're used to warmer temperatures. And, you know, most of them are not on territory right now, so they're not really concerned about holding migration territory. So they do have this reaction that they do feel the need to sing, but they don't feel the need to sing immediately to uh, establish territory. Um, yeah. Rob, do you know some of the theories of why dawn choruses happen? Hmm. I'm, I don't, I'm not aware as, uh, maybe not as much as you, but the way I usually see it is as a way to establish territory early in the morning, because at night, basically there's this pause. Nobody is really defending their territory that much with a few exceptions. Um, I do know once in a while, the field sparrow will wake up in the middle of the night and, and, and sing because um, I've done work with bioacoustic monitors and that's something we've noticed that every hour or two hours or so field sparrows will wake up and make one song phrase and then go back to sleep. Uh, but for the most part, most birds consider like the first thing in the morning, the time to reestablish, this is my territory. Um, and as long as nobody's competing with it, they basically become less and less frequent as the day goes on because they feel less need to um, reaffirm that if nobody's challenging it. An important thing to remember when it comes to dawn choruses is that cities and our soundscapes are changing the way birds sing. And in many cases, dawn choruses can start earlier in certain places or could not happen because birds need to avoid sound masking. And so they can either start early so they can happen before the sounds of the city wake up or in some locations, birds choose not to sing a nest completely because it's a waste of energy to try to go over the city sounds. Rob, I have one final question from you and it comes from the audience, audience from yeah. Kathy. She asked, what is the equipment you use for these recordings? More than a cell phone, I assume she says. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have some Zoom microphones. Um, what I often recommend for people if they're wanting to go beyond the cell phone is to uh, the, there's a particular model I used, and there's probably equivalents in other brands, but um, the one I started with that wasn't a cell phone was called the Zoom H1N. That isn't what I recorded these with, but it would be almost as good with the Zoom H1N, and that's under $200. Uh, it's a tiny little thing. Usually um, journalists use it and stuff. It's got what's called an XY mic. It cap captures stereo. I usually basically turn it to the max, because um, birds are not as loud as people. You would think they're louder, but they're further away, right? Um, when people are talking, they tend to be next to each other. So when I'm doing my podcast, I have to talk very quietly or else it'll overly dominate the, um, the soundscape of it. Um, and But you have to make sure to get as well a wind screen and a, a wind foam cover. So they, uh, I don't think the microphone comes with a wind foam, but 
just a tip. I always tell everyone, if you get those fuzzy windscreens, which you've see, probably seen before, they look like a bunch of fur thrown on it. Make sure to also get the foam, which is the typical thing you see on top of a mic, a foam cap. Make sure to put the foam cap on first and then put the fuzzy windscreen over top, or you'll get a lot of jostling sounds from the windscreen moving about. Rob, um, KM would like you to write the equipment in the chat if okay. you have a chance. And then Dr. Arthur asks, do you have a recommended app to use for your phone when recording? When recording, um, you should, I don't have a specific one because I haven't done with the phone for a while, but um, in the past I did use the voice recorder, which wasn't the best idea because it compresses uh, the sound. Um, you should get something that has a gain control. So that means it should, it's able to raise the volume on your mic, basically, and uh, also something that saves in a lossless format like Wave or FLAC or something like that, um, ideally. Um, you can also buy microphones for your phone to plug in an external mic to boost it, especially if it's called a high gain microphone, Yeah, that can help. Um, just make sure it's omnidirectional yeah. if you're doing that. Uh, if you're getting into directional, that the Zoom H1 actually is a directional one, but it's an XY, which means it's very wide directions to it. So. Um, that's, you, just, that's something to look into. Um, and to follow up also on that original question, the exact model I was using for that recording is uh, Zoom um, H6 uh, for that. I think you're the person that I know of that has listened to more Don choruses. And I'm wondering how has listening to so many Don choruses kind of shaped you as a person? It's hmm. interesting. I hadn't really thought of that. Um, certainly I wake up earlier days, <laughs> days. <laughs> uh, gotten to know, um, I don't know, got to know natural spaces in a very different way. Um, even if I am personally not there, I've had a lot of field recorders out, um, during dawn choruses. So you learn a lot about the habits of species and, um, yeah, it's really fascinating just to find out like get to know a specific space, for example, and you always hear this same cardinal at a certain time, like half an hour before sunrise, you know, starting to tick, even in the winter, it's, it happens then. And uh, it's really fascinating, I think. I would like to say to people that for me, listening to birds is really key for my mental state because they are a very stable frame to an unstable changing world, particularly during the pandemic. That thing that Rob just said, birds are incredibly hormonal when it comes to singing and when it comes to daylight. And daylight doesn't change with temperature. And so the same cardinal will sing in the same spot almost at the same time. And many migratory birds that are returning will hit the same spot that they left across the lake with a three to six meter difference. And so birds and listening to them and engaging with them gives you a lot of stability and allows you to read the world beyond the changing news or beyond the changing social media. And they are always happening exactly at the same in a very predictive way. And then Kelsey asked, Andres, can you speak to us about the magic of Toronto and the migration routes? Of course I can. So as it was mentioned earlier, Toronto sits in the amazing, and I'm telling you this as a Costa Rican, Costa Rica is known for an incredibly diversity of birds, over 850 species. Getting a new species in Costa Rica costs you $10, while $80 or $90 in Australia. So it's intense. 
And I've never had such an intense birding experience as Toronto during spring. For a reference, when we used to have Toronto Pearson Airport working, 350,000 people would come a day in average. Well, 50 million birds go through the city in two weeks. In fact, yesterday night, if you look at the radars, millions of birds were coming and they were hitting the city and more will come. So it's sitting in the middle of two flyways, passing the skies that birds use, possibly due to the ravines and the shape of the lake that they will follow. And so Toronto sits in the middle of two flyways, which is fantastic. If I'm not mistaken, it's Atlantic and Mississippi and they meet here. And so it's a prime spot. And then Laurie asked, when is, peak uh, when is peak spring migration predicted for Toronto this year? So right now the flood, like, like the gates for migration have been open. And so yesterday we started getting piping clovers and greater yellow legs and more sparrows, but the warblers, which it's a thing that people like, will come in a couple of weeks, right, Rob? Yeah, usually, I, uh, so for a few years, I was doing the field events for the Hamilton Naturalist Club, and I always had to predict months in advance somehow when to schedule the warbler walks. But I generally went with the second full week in May as that, but it really varies because you noticed, of course, last year that we had a snowstorm on like May 10th, and that really delayed everything to like the third week of May instead third full week. So it, uh, yeah, things can vary. Lori Mays, Bird Raider. I'm going to put the link. Yes, there's a Bird Raider. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and you can see the, the the different colors for when there's a lot of birds and we can pick them on the Raider. Are we ready, Haya? I'm going to see if I can um, share my audio. So the first two, there were two that we heard, one that was seven yep. seconds and one that was eight seconds, and both of them are from Glen Goen Road. Tell us, Rob, I, I just want to say that I'm learning my birds. I'm very new to birding by ear. Rob is more of an expert. I have a theory, though. Tell us, Rob, what do we listen to? So from what I heard there, there was a house sparrow and then there was a northern cardinal <laughs> in there. Okay, so for you guys that are starting, the Northern Cardinal, I love how it calls, and it's one of those birds that hormonally is very linked to uh, sun. And so it, after the solstice, the winter solstice, when the, laser, the days are getting longer, they start going to high perches and start singing with this typical position, right? And for me, they sound like a Star Wars bird. I just put the description over there. It sounds like, you know, laser guns. And that's how I remember it. Sorry, it's not a good comparison, but that's how I remember it. Or like a metallic chicken when they're doing their calls. You know, I find everyone's different in their description of the birds, and that's perfectly fine. I, you know, my theory is always, you know, learn it through some kind of story uh, that you can understand and that you can learn. And eventually, over time, just becomes second nature and you forget what your initial story was of how it sounded. As a final cool fact, the females of cardinals sing, and they sing from the nest to tell the male that she's hungry.
So once again, I would say the same. I would say the same. <laughs> yeah. Those bureaus are really fascinating. I think they, even though I know people like, you know, they're, they are invasive. They were brought over. They're not native to here, but it's, um, I don't know, Andreas, you might may know more than the, more than me on this, but from what I recall, there isn't really a native range for them in terms of natural range, because they've just started following humans around so long ago. Not following. Yeah. Being taken. Oh, being taken. In yeah, many cases, they were yeah. taken. And there's a famous battle between Chinese emperors and house sparrows in which they tried to eliminate it from them eating <laughs> in the rice fields. And everyone stood up with pots trying to keep the house sparrows awake during days. And then they started dropping dead. And house sparrows have a very deep entrenched relationship with humans. Yeah. Well, I have heard of house sparrows living in mines that have never seen the sky. They live deep in mines and I believe it was in South America. Yes. About those cases. And um, uh, it's funny you mentioned the war thing because I remember somebody posted this map to Twitter last night that was pretty funny about countries that lost wars to birds. <laughs> China was one of them and Australia was the other. Um, we've got one from Andre Street. Two things in there. What what do we have there, Rob? Quite a bit. Uh, American Robin, Red uh -huh. Blackbird. Uh -huh. I heard a grackle in there. I heard uh -huh. a ruby crowned kinglet in there. I didn't hear that one. Song Sparrow. I didn't hear that one either. <laughs> And uh, some kind of warbler uh, was in there, but it was kind of quiet, so I couldn't tell which one. Quite a this bit is, in there. This is what a perfected year does. I have <laughs> two species. <laughs> the grackle you could hear in the back. It look it. It sounds very harsh and very metallic compared to the very cheery song of the robin that I just placed there. People remember the robin as cheerio, 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 um, or cheerily. Uh, which is an easy way of doing it. And it reminds me so much when I wake up and listen to a Robin, it reminds me of a clay colored thrush, Elias Jiguiru mm. uh, from Costa Rica, which is our national bird. It's the most boring bird. It's like brown. That's it. We didn't choose a quetzal or a, a, a harpy eagle. We chose a Robin. And it's partly because it represents the values of Costa Ricans. We wake up early and we're modest and we sing very well. And so it reminds me of listening to the Robins from home which I hope every Latin American can feel related to the birds that are returning. If I can add here to something that was asked earlier about the, how do you learn uh, bird song more over the year? Once you get to know the common birds really well, like the American Robin, there are certain birds you can then go while they sound like a Robin, but in a different quality. Mm -hmm. So you can leapfrog from getting to know the American Robin really well to getting to know the rose-breasted grosbeak, mm -hmm. uh, because they're often referred to as a Robin who took singing lessons because they're very sweet and not as harsh and uh, dissonant sounding. Or you can go with the Scarlet Tanager. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a Robin with a sore throat. 
It's more <laughs> harsh and more dissonant. Let's go to the next one. Hiya. That one's a lot quieter. A lot quieter. Uh, but uh, American Robin is the only thing I picked up in there. And maybe a car or a maybe monster. A Could have been a monster. Yeah, it was too. a uh, Ford Focus, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Let's go to the next no one. Idea. <laughs> Rob, before we go to the next one, yeah. Chipping Sparrow, yeah. Pine Warbler, and Dark Eye Junko. How do you tell them apart? And Swamp Sparrow. <laughs> <sighs> And if you really want to get bad, uh, we're, we're meeting Warblers, another fun one to mix in that there too. But um, so I would start with maybe start the Chipping Sparrow because it's the one everyone would hear in an urban context most often. Uh, if you can get to know it and it's, it's, it's kind of straight in terms of it keeps the same volume the whole time. It goes on for a bit. It has a continuous trill um, that machine gun. Yeah, machine gun. Now, then, when you go to the swamp sparrow, for example, it's what a more ringing sound. It rings out. Every little trill is just a little brighter, um, okay. almost like a. So, if you know music really well, you know the term staccato. It is more staccato uh, in that. And yes, I have a music degree, so maybe that helps with terms like that. <laughs> um, and. When you get to the pine warbler, it varies its volume quite a bit. It actually tends to start quietly, get louder, and then quiet again, stuff ah. like that. You can also take habitat hints, too, with those. So um, you're in a swamp or marsh, you have more likelihood of the swamp sparrow. Uh, you're in an urban context, more likely a chipping sparrow. But if you're out um, maybe in a meadow, you could also have a chipping sparrow there, too, or edge habitat of some kind, because they love that kind of habitat. Uh, Dark-eyed Junko, that one's, you know, you only get to hear it singing kind of at the beginning of spring and then they take off for a lot of us. Yeah. But if you are somewhere that happens to have some on territory, uh, the only places I've found them in Ontario on territory tend to be along the Niagara Escarpment in the <laughs> middle of summer. Um, and uh, so habitat hints help there. Uh, what was the other one you mentioned? There was one more. Did I miss it? Pine Warbler, no, those were it. No, no, those were it. I mentioned worm eating warblers, a bit of a joke, but because uh, it's a little too rare for us to really discuss. So, and for me to even really know all that well, but uh, they are similar too. Let's go to the next one. Haya, thank you. Um, I have a couple on Instagram that I'll go ahead and play. get the american robins do we have something else in the background rob i only catch the american robins yeah i got several american robins yeah and they're they're going to be dominant in a lot of urban soundscapes um they kind of i don't know it, 
you might know, know more than me on the studies on this or not, but I'm always curious, like are American Robins more common now than they would have been a hundred years ago mm. because of the, uh, the worm, the earthworm going further and further north and spreading. Uh, Cause it's a, the earthworms a European species, at least the, the dominant one we get here. And that's a big food source for them. And if I might link to other organisms, earthworms are not very good for North American ecosystems, even though teachers at my daughter's school tend to teach this because they are a good sign of a good soil in other locations. But in North America, they decompose the upper part, the leaf litter of the forest, they decompose it faster. And that leaf litter is critical for salamanders and other creatures that live there. And so what Rob is linking is very interesting because, yeah, it might help American robins and make them more common. But uh, earthworms are somewhat hurtful for other creatures that depend on that very thick layer of leaves. I think also lawns also make them far more common, just like Canada goose. Um, Canada, I mean, there couldn't be a more perfect habitat we couldn't have created for Canada goose than lawns everywhere. I noticed there was a question too about American robins hearing worms in the ground. And I believe that's true, but also when they're tilting their head, they're actually looking too. They're actually looking. Because their eyes don't look forward like ours. They look to two sides. And, and they're so fixed. They, and they're fixed in place. So when they're bowing their head, they are listening, but they're also staring as well. Let's go to the next one. Hi. Let's, let's let the crowd take like 15 seconds to say which did they hear on this call because we have some very amazing birders here uh, that we're getting a whole bunch of sounds on the early recording so quick. So, Lori says Cardinal, check. What else did we get here, guys? Can you, can you ID some more of the birds? I heard like three things or four. Uh, some of them were calls and some of them were songs. Uh, maybe let's make the difference between song or call for the ones that are new to bird songs. Songs are used for reproduction. They either tell, hey, hey, ladies, I'm here. Please come. Or they either tell, stay away from my territory. This is where I am at, which is what Rob was referring to earlier, if, if they start singing early in the morning, when the sun is coming, there are less noises, their song goes farther, but they still establish a territory early in the morning, and they can keep it. Uh, <clears throat> and then the calls, which are more like the chirps, the beep, beep. In some cases, other times, calls can be more complicated, like the psh, psh, psh from the, the wrens, or the chickadee-dee-dee, from chickadees, right? Um, calls are more about location, location, location location of threats, location of partners, location of kids. Uh, so calls are about location. 
Do we have any more guesses besides Cardinal? Uh, Mark says Robins will eat frozen berries on trees and bushes and they love sumac. All right, yeah, that's a very good fact about natural history of Robins. What else did we have, have on the recording, Rob? Well, there was a house sparrow as well, too, the cheeks yeah. in there. Um, chirp, chirp. The most interesting one was that Ruby Crown Kinglet song. Yeah! They're quiet songs, but they're there. And Ruby Crown Kinglets are quiet singers. Like they're tiny birds and they don't. They're very thin and wispy sounding songs. And then parts of their songs stand out as louder. So they, they kind of run the gamut of frequencies. They go up and down and all over the place. And they have some very chickadee-like sounds they make as well too. They're not too different from the size of a chickadee either. But it's only this time of year you'll really hear that song because they're just passing through. Rob, when do we get to see the crown of a ruby crown? <laughs> so when the male is doing a display, uh, maybe they're being aggressive and uh, or trying to impress a, a potential mate, they'll elevate the crown uh, on their head, uh, which shows this ruby um, ruby crown, basically, kind of like the crest of a, of a cardinal, um, but much smaller, but much brighter, I would say, than a cardinal. Rob, can we... Can you tell us how to start memorizing birds from the, the, the graphic display of the songs? Yeah. How can we start learning them by looking at them? Yes. How do you call this, Rob? This is a spectrograph. Spectrograph. Or, or spectrogram. The terms are more or less interchangeable. Um, now, you'll see this little this thing here. What this is is a trill of some kind. And the way this works is... The lower frequencies are lower down. You can see all this static here, and that is background sounds of highways, roadways, airplanes, that kind of stuff. Higher range is where you're going to get your bird song. And if there was a human talking in here, the human voice cross cuts through both of this, um, unless they're singing or something. So let's let's hear what this actually sounds like. Oops. Yeah, play here. Shipping, right? No, in this case, this was uh, Swamp Sparrow. Swamp Sparrow. You see? Yeah. This is why they're complicated. Yeah. It's very staccato, this one, and it was in a marshy area. What does staccato mean, Rob? Uh, harsh. Or, sorry, not okay. harsh. Um, short and hard kind of thing. So it would be like, it's like hitting the head of a drum kind okay. of thing repetitively. What do you have in this one? So let's see what we have here. I believe this is some of our um, red-winged blackbirds, but let me check. Nope, I'm wrong. So this is our Carolina Wren. I'm not used to use it, having this zoomed in. That's why I didn't recognize it. Um, so let's go back to here and see what we get here just quickly. So that's two different songs of the uh, Carolina Wren there. You'll notice you can actually kind of follow the, the sound they make. It's kind of like a, a, a staff in the, yeah, the TKL, TKL, TKL. It might remind you of music, uh, written music. They were going up and down notes here. So Wrens are the Burger by Ear Nightmare or Delight. Carolina Wrens mm -hmm. can have 50 different songs 
and other species of wrens where they originated from, the wrens are from the Neotropics. So it's so nice to listen to them here because in the Neotropics we have 30 species and they are less here. But in the Neotropics, a couple of wrens, of brown ape wrens, could have up to 200 sounds specific to the couple. And so they can be a nightmare. Rob asks, uh, Laurel asks, I heard the queer queer in the background. Is it a red-bellied? There was a red-bellied woodpecker in here, yes. Laurel is so good. Yeah. Uh, this is the song sparrow. And I'm trying to think. Of it. It's hard to see where the ruby crown kinglet might be because they're kind of quiet. But let's go through here and see if we catch it. So in the background, you can hear some of the warbly sounds of the um, ruby crown kinglet. It's kind of quiet, but there is also uh, in here the bald eagle. That's in there. But the song sparrow, let's take a look at that because that one's a complex one that really um, can be fun to take a look at. I love the song sparrows. For me, they're the sound of spring, not because they start early, because but just they are very present. And look at that name, right? Song Sparrow. They sound so melodious. So you can see the sections of the song here, where they're hitting a couple notes, and then their repetitive part. That's a then, trill, right? Yep. And then an even faster trill in here, and then they're kind of ending notes. The, for me, the trill of the Song Sparrow at the end, it sounds almost like a buzz. And uh, maybe one last, let's take a look at the Blue Jay and Robin, because this is a nice contrast. The Blue Jay is hitting notes like by cross-cutting. So it's a lot more like the human voice hmm. where it cross-cuts like this. So for those that are new to bird sounds, cross-cutting is very important for birds or actually going above the very... Uh, the very deep noises from the city. So they have to go to the higher pitch frequencies in order to uh, to go above that sound masking. In some cases, we don't know if they're changing their songs to be more high pitch or if when they yell, do they sound high pitch? There's the rock in here. You can already tell from this how the soundscape looks, how rich it is. Fascinating. Rob, thank you so much for sharing for sharing this visual yeah. image with us. On behalf of all the partners, Parks People, High Park Nature Center that set up this amazing event, uh, Songbirding Podcast and Birds Canada, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. I had so much fun. I think this is the most amazing Dawn Chorus, digital Dawn Chorus format we've ever had. And so thank you all. It looks from the chat that you guys had, a, that you peeps had a, a wonderful time. And thank you to High Park Nature Center for bringing us on board. I was really happy to host you this morning. Thank you, Andres and Rob. Thank you so much. And thank you, Jenny, so much for all the coordination. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to everyone, especially Andres and Rob for kind of storing these birds because it can be really confusing for beginner birders. And definitely in the follow-up email, I will have the link to Toronto Bird Celebration so you can see all of the incredible events that are coming up. 
um, and as well as the Into Ravines program. And they also have some incredible events coming up. So thank you very, very much. Have a wonderful Sunday, everyone.